0: Some of you know that at Advent, I like to make the case for putting a John the Baptist Christmas ornament on your tree. That may sound strange to some of you, but that's why I have to make the case. They do exist, by the way, these John the Baptist Christmas ornaments. I've received one after a sermon like this. Um, So you can Google them. What's important is, is that John is a crucial part of the Christmas story. Now, this can seem a little odd at first, right? Because, of course, John doesn't take up his public ministry as the forerunner until 30 years after the birth of Christ. So what's he doing in the Christmas story? But from the perspective of the Old Testament prophets, they look and they see a forerunner who prepares the way for the Messiah. Right. They see the forerunner, then they see the Messiah in the Spirit. Regardless of the fact that in the actual outworking of events, the forerunner appear, appears after the incarnation, after the angels and all of these Christmas events, right after the birth of the Son of God from Mary. John is important. We saw it in the Gospel lesson. Now again, these, these scripture texts that we're reading... I do not just pick them out. They're an electionary, right? They have a long-standing history of selection by the, by the whole broader church. There's a reason Luke 3 is a gospel lesson in the middle of Advent. Because John points to Jesus, and in pointing to Jesus, he points to the last day. He points to this coming fire. You may have heard that in the text. There's a reason that the Advent season and all the readings in it start with the second coming and not the first. The church begins at the end. It begins in the resurrection. It lives out of the age to come. This is enacted by the whole church, east and west, through the centuries, by the fact that they put Advent and the eschaton at the front of the church year. As I mentioned last week, Karl Barth says famously, the church has no other season but Advent. She lives in this expectation out of this life because the resurrection of Jesus in the power of the age to come is the source of Christian existence. So in Advent, we look back and in looking back, we look forward and these are not two different things. Advent is about the day of the Lord, the coming day, which has broken into our time in Jesus Christ. And that's the reason these traditional readings are full of texts about John the Baptist, not just the Gospel text. Our Old Testament reading, which is our text this morning from the prophet Malachi, turns out is also first and foremost about John. Only in the Malachi text, Right? We see John in close connection to the one he points to. John's a pointer. That same Karl Barth also said, the best symbol of John the Baptist is a finger pointing away to Christ. That's what he does. That's John's whole ministry. He points. And in their actual ministries, as in this text, John decreases, Christ increases as the text unfolds. So, with that, we want to make three points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. The accusation, the messenger, and the messenger of the covenant. It's interesting, right? In the, um, the prayer for illumination, just to point one other thing out here in the liturgy. In the prayer for illumination, it says that God is revealed to us in his word in accounts of prophecy and fulfillment that direct us to Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we have in this Malachi text. It's an account of prophecy and fulfillment that directs us to Jesus. So first, this accusation. The setting here, briefly, similar to last week's text. Right. The the setting here is the middle of the 5th century. It's a little later than last week's text. But the 5th century B.C. Israel has returned from exile. They've been dragged off into Babylonian exile. Now they're back in the land. The temple has been rebuilt. The city and its wall has been rebuilt. But there's a problem. The promised glory has not manifested itself. Remember, the tabernacle built by Moses was filled with the visible glory of God upon its completion. It's a replica of heaven. That's why heaven itself comes down and descends into the tabernacle. And the later temple built by Solomon was also filled with the visible glory of God. So here's Israel. They've got this rebuilt temple, but God has not seen fit to show his glory. And this is our hope. The visible manifest, right, seen glory of God. Even though the prophet Haggai had promised, he had promised the people that the latter glory of this house would be greater than the former glory of Solomon's temple. Right? Haggai had said, You're going to come back to the land, you're going to be rebuild this temple, and the glory of this temple will exceed the Solomonic glory. And yet, no glory has shown up. And Israel remains under the thumb of Persian rule. So the people are seeing the wicked prosper. Justice is delayed. They're taking their complaints to God. History is this big, jumbled, complicated, ambiguous mess. And the prophet said, we'd come back to the land. We'd do God's will. God would show his glory. Our enemies would be dispersed. And they're like, um, that's not what's happening. Now, there's a right way to complain. Right? Habakkuk complains the right way. He asks God, the prophet Habakkuk, how could you possibly look on the evil of the Babylonians? Right? And he, he questions God for apparently idly sitting by and refusing to act. But Habakkuk, he's seeking the vindication of God's justice, right? The upholding of God's law, right? He seeks the deeper purposes of God in the midst of his apparent silence, in the face of evil. Prophets like this are like watchmen on the walls of Israel, You know, there's a famous passage in Isaiah 62. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all day and all night. They shall never be silent. They cry out to God to establish Jerusalem and make it a praise in the earth. There's a right way to protest the state of the world to God. The prophets do it. We saw Isaiah do it in last week's text, if you were here for that. The Psalms are full of it. But that is not what's happening with Israel in our text. They are protesting the wrong way. We'll see that in a second. You have wearied me with your words, the Lord says to them. What an astonishing sentiment from God. And what an indictment of the people. Can you imagine? This is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the one who does not grow faint or weary. Right? The one who does not find upholding the universe to be a burden. The one who does all things with infinite ease. He is nonetheless wearied by the words of his own people. And he uses this, the word for weary here is a very strong word. It means aggravated, or agitated, or exhausted, or exasperated. It's the same word he, God uses, or the prophets will use, for being annoyed. You have wearied me with your words. The unweariable God is exhausted with these people. Think about this, right? Now, it would be wrong. It's important to see this. It would be wrong to think of God's emotional life as being yanked all over the place by human behavior, sinful or otherwise. But whatever this is, in human language, in some mysterious way, this is an expression of how God responds to this type of sinful complaining, but to say the least. To say the least, it expresses profound displeasure. But the people, they seek to rebut the charge of wearying God. I mean, imagine that, right? God accuses you of wearying Him, and you would like to now make your case that you're not doing that. They say, the, the prophet says here, but you say, how have we wearied him? Right? Like This is a sign of judgment, right? These people have no consciousness of how fed up God is with their antics. They're just blind to their folly. They're ignorant of this exhausting, wearying effect they have on God himself. And on top of that, they're defensive. They're like, how have we, well, uh, how have we wearied him? And so the prophet says, all right, I'll I'll tell you how. I'll tell you how. Here's how you've wearied God, by saying things like this. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, this is not as crass and as crude as it looks. What they're saying is, it doesn't seem like God is sorting the world out the way he said he would. Right? We obey, God blesses us. They don't obey, God curses them, sorts everything out. That's not happening. But there is a brazenness here, right? They're basically calling God unrighteous. They're looking around. They're saying, look, there's immorality. There's gross political corruption in Israel. The wicked are prospering and blessed. And it appears like God is good with it. Right? That's that's the complaint. And God's exhausted with this. Let, Let me expand. Let me um unpack this complaint a little further by if you go one chapter ahead in the book of Malachi you can see God sort of unroll this complaint a little more and here's, what's, here's what that says there it says your words have been hard against me says the Lord but you say how have we spoken against you you have said it is vain to serve God what is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts I mean we, if we can't like distill some relatively short-term historical benefit from our obedience and our mourning, and they are being disobedient, and they seem to be doing just fine, what's the point of it? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, they put God to the test, they escape. God, they claim here, no longer is upholding the covenant. He no longer appears to be blessing the righteous and judging the wicked. So they ask, now I'm back to our text, they ask, where is the God of justice? Where, where is he? he? He appears unconcerned with history or writing the wrongs of it or straightening things out, at least on our timetable. These people do not want a providence that's inscrutable or unsearchable. They don't want a God whose ways are beyond finding out. They want something relatively flat and two-dimensional. And if we do what Israel's doing here, if we take our eyes off the character and the promises of God in Scripture, and we look merely at the world, at the empirical data around us, we'll have plenty of reasons to ask, where is the God of justice? The whole Bible's full of questions like this. And if we do it in that faithless way, we will be wearying God with our words. So that's the accusation. So we're going to get to God's response. The second point here is the messenger. So God responds to the complaining. He says, behold, I send my messenger. This is a direct direct reference ultimately to John the Baptist. Malachi will say again in the next chapter, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Jesus tells us expressly, he tells us expressly in Matthew 11, that John the Baptist is Elijah, who is to come. Now, let me make this aside. I've I've done it here before. I want to say it again, though, because it's important, because it gives us a certain kind of chastened perspective. God is answering their very profound existential cries about justice and righteousness, right? And his answer is, in 400 years, I'm going to send a prophet. All right. That's the answer, though, right? Here's my answer to you. Behold, I send my forerunner. Oh, good. When? A couple couple centuries. All right. So, it's important for us to see this, right? God will rectify the world, utterly and completely, gloriously, beyond our imaginations, including the past. He will do it in His way, and in His time, and in the meantime, we should refrain from wearying Him with our accusations. So, John the Baptist, in verse 1 he, he will, our text says, this is Malachi 3, one. prepare the way before me. Same language used in Isaiah 40, of which we sang this morning, used in all four Gospels about John. Here's, here's Isaiah on, on the Baptist, on John. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway, Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain shall be made low, the uneven ground shall be made level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This language, as heard by the Israelites from the mouth of Isaiah, would evoke the appearing of royalty, of kings, of victorious monarchs in the ancient Near East. And they'd be coming to your town. And what would have to do, you'd have to send out an advanced team. Much the way that would happen if a dignitary or a president or a head of state was coming to a town. You send out an advanced team. And what do they do? They clear the roadways. They remove the rocks. They level out the road. They plow stuff so that the king's arrival with his retinue would be smooth. That's the background of Isaiah's language here. Of valleys being lifted up and rocks being moved out of the way. So here, in Isaiah and in the Gospels, it turns out that the language refers now to the interior life. You saw this in our opening prayer this morning, by the way. It was also in the hymn we sang. It refers to the inner landscape of Israel, not the nations. So notice what Malachi's doing, right? He says, look, this is not so much about the nations. It's about you guys, the covenant people. You need to be reordered. That is a shocking thing here. These are complaining people. They they have the world divided up into we have the white hats. They are the bad people. God has to act to remove them and vindicate us. God says, I will. Give me a couple centuries. And what I will do is I'm going to reorder your interior life. They're finding fault with God, with the nations, with everybody but themselves. And it turns out that this reference to Isaiah 40 is about Israel. In other words, it's about the covenant people. God says to us, you need to be convulsed and shattered and pulverized and restructured and reconstituted. Those who accuse God of some sort of silent complicity in evil or a failing to act and do justice, those people are not ready for God to appear and act. That's what Malachi is saying. You're not ready for this. It has escaped them that judgment begins at the house of God as it often escapes us. We heard that in the the New Testament lesson this morning. So God promises in mercy that he's going to send a messenger, John the Baptist, who will prepare a people, who will ready a people, who will straighten out and restructure a people for the appearance of God, for the glorious appearance of the Lord. And that brings me to the third point here which is the messenger of the covenant. So this is the middle of verse 1, Malachi chapter 3 still. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So in their own like impatient way, they are seeking God. They're seeking the Lord. But like the people of Amos' day, they assume that the day of the Lord will be all sweetness and light for them. Right. Everybody loves to see justice done on somebody else. So they're like, the day of the Lord's going to come, and he's going to straighten this out. But this passage will disabuse us of that attitude. For quite unexpectedly, God, again, as he always does through the prophets, puts his people in the crosshairs first. Right? The parallel to the Lord whom you seek in this passage is the messenger of the covenant in whom you ironically delight, the prophet says. Behold, he's coming. So just to be clear, there are two figures in the passage here. There's a messenger, who is John the Baptist, and then there's the messenger of the covenant, who is the Lord. And this second figure, whom John prepares the way for, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Lord who is the mediator, who establishes and upholds the covenant. Isn't it marvelous that 400 years before Christ, you've got a passage that points both to John and points to John's pointing to Christ and points to Christ. So, back up a little bit with me here. What's the divine answer to the question of evil? I mean, he could drop, God could drop down like a philosophical treatise, I suppose. Right? He could send a, a lecture with, a, with a, a collection of good arguments. Here's the question, right? Where is the God of justice? The answer to that question is Jesus Christ, period. He is the reply of God to the bent, broken, mangled, twisted world. His bent, broken, mangled, twisted body is God's response he is the Lord. He's the messenger of the covenant. He will come suddenly, the text says, meaning unexpectedly. This is language used of the second coming in the New Testament. Though here, remember, from the vantage point of the prophets, they see both comings sort of collapsed into one movement, one explosion of messianic glory, one movement of salvation and judgment. One advent with two poles, an already pole and a not yet pole. That's what they see when the prophets look forward. The first coming is the second coming in advance. So from the viewpoint of the prophet, there's just this one grand messianic movement, the day of his coming. He will come suddenly notice, what is he going to come to? His temple. Again, they want him to come to deal with the bad people, (laughs) but he comes to the temple. So let me just briefly just trace this out for a moment here on the temple. The beginning of this is indeed part of the Christmas story. Jesus comes to his temple, right? He comes to the temple, and, and what happens? Simeon and Anna see him in the temple. Later he comes to the temple and he cleanses it with a whip. After that he comes to the temple and declares that it's going to be destroyed within a generation. And the Romans destroy the temple in 70 AD. He declares that his own body is the new temple. And that by offering his body he will through the spirit create a global temple. Right, this temple theme is the whole Bible story. He'll create this global temple, namely the body of Christ. He will relocate the earthly temple into the heavenly sanctuary. And ultimately from there, he will transfigure the whole cosmos into a glorious temple for his name. All of this happens. All of this follows in the train of the messenger of the covenant appearing. It's a sweeping movement that Malachi sees from Christmas to the consummation. And it ends with the fiery, visible glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what Malachi is saying. So how does this come to pass when the messenger of the covenant appears? It turns out the prophet teaches more. He teaches, well, there are two things that happen. Purification and judgment. Judgment. Take a brief look at both of them. First, purification, which you can see in verses 2 through 4. Now, this is a bit more than the people bargained for when they complained about God's absence. He's coming. But notice the question the prophet asks. He says, he's coming. Who can endure the day of his appearing and stand when he appears? It's almost like the prophet saying, be careful what you wish for. Be careful, right? Who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? This is a rhetorical question, right? The answer is no one. No one of themselves can stand in the day of judgment. If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What a question. It's an Advent question. Who can endure the day of His coming? And that's a question which drives us to the cross. Drives us to Jesus Christ. This is a day, the prophet says, of purifying fire for his faithful ones. For he goes on and he says in the text, notice this. He's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He sits like a refiner, a purifier of silver. So he places us in the furnace and he burns away the dross. The impurities. He takes the people of God into this process of redemptive suffering in the fire of the Holy Spirit. This is just what God does. He purifies, notice this in the text, he purifies the sons of Levi. Who stand in here for the whole people. They point forward to the priesthood of the whole church in the new covenant. You are the sons of Levi. The messenger has come to the temple to you. And he has come to purify you in his refining fire. So that you might stand on that day. It's a severe and thorough mercy. It's a deep transformative cleansing. That's what Advent is about. And what comes forth in the text is this radiant, spotless bride of Christ. Notice the text speaks of a priesthood coming forth, refined like gold and silver, a priesthood which makes offerings in righteousness before the Lord. He comes as a refining fire. And also, coupled with this, he brings judgment. You can see that in verse 5, and I'll be very brief here. I draw near to you for judgment. The two things always go together, right? Judgment and purification, or purification and judgment, judgment and salvation, salvation and judgment. They went together for Jesus, right? Suffering, then glory. That means they're going to go together for us. So, you want to know where the God of justice is? God will answer again in Christ on the day of his coming. At this time, he will not be slow to act. He will, the text says, be a swift witness against his people. So again, we don't get to glory, like we don't get to this refined, purified fire that stands on the day of the Lord without going through this, or, this judgment ordeal. And you get a list here of public and private sins in verse 5. I wish we had the time to unpack them. I'll just say this. Um... There there are sins, some of which we tend to be concerned with, and some of which we don't. They all stem, though, from an absence of the fear of the Lord in verse 5. So, the point to grasp here is this. Salvation is always through fiery judgment. Always through fiery judgment. The same flaming appearance that purifies And judges. Or in John the Baptist's words, Jesus is ready, he says, to gather the wheat into his barn and to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So let me conclude. The text prophesies of two messengers. One is John the Baptist, the other is our Lord Jesus Christ, the messenger of the covenant. And here's the good news. He, the messenger of the covenant, will bear the sanctions of the covenant for his people. That's what happens there. Right At the cross, he undergoes what he himself calls a baptism of fire, bearing the judgment of God on his own head. What is happening at the cross? Yes, we can say Jesus is dying for our sins. Perfectly true. Beautiful. But A more profound way to say it is the final judgment which we all face is being born for us there. Those sanctions of the last day are taken on Jesus' own head. And thus he brings and he delivers us from the wrath of God. The greatest threat to you and to me is God. Sometimes I listen to people, I think they think the greatest threat is the culture. What did Jesus say? Don't fear those who can kill the body. And after they kill the body, they can do anything else. Fear Him who, after He kills the body, can throw you into hell. 1 Thessalonians 1 Jesus Christ delivers us from what? The wrath which is to come. It turns out that God Himself is more dreadful, more terrible, terrifying, and more of an issue for us, than all collective social, cultural, and political enemies through the whole history of the church. Which is not to say that that that's not a real problem that we have to deal with. But God himself is the threat to his people. His holiness, his purity. We need to be delivered by God from the wrath of God through one who bears that wrath. And that's what the messenger of the covenant does. He delivers us from the wrath which is to come. And in and through his coming, his appearing, his fire becomes a healing, purifying ordeal. As we conform ourselves to his death, we find that he bears our curse, he bears the wrath of God, and he's refining and purifying a people. What does Peter say about this in that first epistle? A little earlier, we read from 1 Peter 4 today, but if you back up a couple chapters, he says, you're in the midst of a fire, he tells the church so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold which perishes, though tested by fire, your faith might be found to result in glory and praise and honor at the unveiling, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. This is what the Christian life is. It's having your faith refined and purified so that on that great day, you might stand when he appears. So Advent means this. It means the fire of the last day has arrived. Now, again, what does this do? This relativizes all other concerns. All of them. The fire of the eschatological judgment of God, with whom we must do, that has appeared. Advent means you and I are now in a furnace. And that is good news because the one doing the purifying has died and borne the holy sanctions and the wrath of God to purify us from our sins. It's good to be in this furnace because Jesus Christ is sitting at the mouth of it. It means that we shall indeed become a purified temple, a holy priesthood, which offers righteous, pleasing sacrifices. We do that now. We did it this morning. We'll do it this week, we do it daily, right? And we will do it in fullness when the whole cosmos becomes a temple to the splendor and glory of this God. In short, you are and you shall be the covenant-keeping people of the messenger of the covenant. This is what happens when God answers the cry of his people Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is what happens. And this is why we say, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Amen. 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 Amen.